Welcome to another edition of Illinois Innovators. I'm Mike Kuhn, joined now by uh, Assistant Professor of Computer Engineering and Computer Science, Andrew Miller at the University of Illinois. Uh, welcome to the program. Hey, Mike. Thanks for having me here. First year here at Illinois, uh, give us a little uh, of your background. Uh, I know you started out in uh, computer graphics, and uh, so just give us a brief outline of, of how you got here. Yeah, sure. So uh, I'm here now as an assistant professor in computer security. Uh, I've pretty recently graduated, uh, so less than a year ago, graduated with my PhD in uh, uh, computer science from the University of Maryland. And my uh, research interest for the past uh, several years, really th three or four years now, and, and the topic of my dissertation was on cryptocurrencies and Bitcoin, which I know we'll talk about. Uh, but before I, I had gotten into that, my background prior to that, my undergrad and master's degree work was in computer graphics and virtual reality and augmented reality. And I was actually already midway through my uh, uh, program as a PhD student at the University of Central Florida when I became really interested in Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies as a side project. And at some point around the time that I got my master's degree, I decided this is what I wanted to switch to. I want to work on this full time, and I wanted that to be the topic of my dissertation. So give us an idea how recent a field this is, where it evolved out of, um, and you know, where you are in, as far as uh, you know, um, where you are in, in terms of the timeline. Oh, wow. Um, so by computer science standards, this is a very recent field. So uh, and I'm very happy and fortunate to have been able to, I guess, get in on the ground floor of cryptocurrency research. So the, the recent wave of this interest began with Bitcoin in 2009. So this was the, the first project of its kind launched in 2009. And I began getting interested in it uh, for research around 2011. And at that point, there had been hardly anyone looking uh, at Bitcoin. One of the first uh, research papers in the security community to have anything to say about it, like a survey of it, came out in 2012. Uh, so it's now at the point that a lot of the interest in this comes from the fact that the system seems to be working. It's been up and running for the six or seven years now. Um, and the, the research community is still somewhat playing catch up. And so the, the real research interest has surged in the past several years, like three years maybe, uh, and it still continues to be a, a growing hot topic. So give us a background of your Twitter handle, which has obviously become your, your email address here at Illinois. Yeah, that's right. So I, I've used uh, my Twitter handle as Socrates1024. 1024 is my favorite power of two. Um, it's the number of uh, bytes in a kilobyte. So you know, for short, I'll go as sock K, so it spells the word sock. I don't know. I picked that handle when I was in high school. I think I picked uh, the name Socrates out of a textbook I was reading at the time, and then my favorite power of two, but I've stuck with it for a very long time. I also have, uh, you'll notice my Twitter avatar is a, a rooster. That's actually a, a, a real rooster, and it's a photo that I took from my hometown uh, in, in Seminole County in central Florida, and the rooster's name is Hancock. And it's like a local celebrity because it's a, a rooster from Oviedo that went and flew around and was a, a local figure. So uh, good avatars, I think, choose you rather than uh, uh, you picking them. So it uh, doesn't mean anything particular significance, but I've stuck with it for so many years now and I'm trying to keep it. Well, certainly people in the field, they know you by that. So when you came to Illinois, it was it made sense that uh, rather than just... Andrew Miller seems like a, yeah, a basic su name. <laughs> surprised at the number of Andrew Millers who are already here at University right. of Illinois in different places. So all variants of Andrew Miller were already taken as a handle. 
Well, you've become an expert in Bitcoin. Um, don't have to go back to the, the elementary level, but uh, give us an idea of you know what that means to society, um, and you know where the average person comes across Bitcoin, and you know, and where it is in its progression. Sure. So. Um most of my research goes into these very technical aspects or maybe future-looking aspects, but uh, and we can talk about some of those, but uh, Bitcoins become uh, something that a lot of people will run into. So I'm constantly hearing from my family members, they hear something interesting about Bitcoin on NPR. Uh, and so I would be interested in doing research, even if it weren't a popular topic, but the fact that it's a popular topic makes it a whole lot more fun. So there's all sorts of places that people will encounter this. Um, Bitcoin ATMs have actually cropped up fairly recently, and so actually on Green Street, uh, there's a restaurant called Cha Time uh, that several of my students had gone to and, and told me about it. They have a Bitcoin ATM there. So even people in Urbana-Champaign will, will potentially go and encounter this. Uh, there's actually a whole large number of them in, in Chicago as well. Uh, in general, people are most likely to... if so say that you hear about Bitcoin on the news or something and you want to go experience it or interact with it in some way. Uh, there are two main ways that you can uh, interact with it. One is that you will go to an online exchange. So even though the Bitcoin system is this complicated peer-to-peer -peer network that's run by anonymous nodes and miners and there's all this complexity, most people's interface to it will be making an account with some online website that's an exchange. Uh, there are there's a big, there's a lot to say about exchange failures, like Mt. Gox was for a large period of Bitcoin's existence the largest exchange, and it had a colossal meltdown and lost all of its funds. It was based in Japan. Um, but nowadays, there are several exchanges that are fairly popular. Uh, Kraken and Poloniex and Coinbase are examples of these. And so if you want to buy Bitcoin, you make an account at one of these websites, one of the popular reputable exchanges. They can hook up to uh, your bank account or credit card or something like that. And uh, you, you can buy and sell Bitcoin using this website, just exchanging it for whatever the price is today. It's not a whole lot different than foreign exchange trading or, or buying stocks through an automated broker website. Um, although you don't have to have nearly as much money to start. If you want to get automated trading with a, a broker, like a stock broker, you need to reach some kind of minimum amount. And there isn't really such a minimum amount in Bitcoin. Give us an idea of sort of the development of that. You, you mentioned that uh, cryptocurrency is less than 10 years old. Uh, you know, what role have you played in this? I mean, uh, people that you have a reputation, uh, I think, uh, kind of connected to Bitcoin. But kind of talk us about your role in, in, in the development or in the field and, and, you know, how did it come about? Sure. Uh, let me maybe answer this way. So, uh, a lot of what I do involves building uh, connections between the academic literature of distributed computing and applied cryptography. There are these many topics that are closely related to what Bitcoin is doing, what cryptocurrencies are doing, that have been active research areas for decades now. And so uh, a lot of people see Bitcoin as this first successful version of eCash or of a, uh, yeah, of eCash or of a, of a crypto-based digital currency. And this is something that, even though many people weren't aware of it, had been actively discussed as a research topic in, in these various communi communities in computer science research for, for a long time. And so uh, one view is that there's nothing new about Bitcoin. This is just now, finally, we have an implementation of what researchers have been discussing for a long time. Uh, I don't hold that view, though. I think most people don't. Uh, there actually really is a big surprise to Bitcoin, which is that... Uh, 
for all of the research that's gone into fault-tolerant systems and applied cryptography, no one would have thought that something like Bitcoin could exist. So all successful instances of uh, distributed systems or electronic money have had some form of central administrator. They've had some kind of administrative component. Either a company is in charge of it. Many of the first attempts at e-cash that came very close, like uh, David Chalm launched a project called DigiCash uh, back in kind of the era of the 2000s. And it ultimately failed for a variety of reasons. That's kind of an interesting history story to see how close we came to having a system like this, but it failed. Um, but it was also very much a different design. It had a company that was the bank and was in charge of uh, accepting deposits from people and, and in exchange giving you these digital currency tokens that the bank had issued. And uh, so what's really surprising about Bitcoin is that it works in this really difficult environment where there is no central administrator. Uh, the, the nodes that make up the network can come and go as they please. They seem to act according to their incentives. And there's no, there's no central uh, authority that says who belongs in the network and who needs to be there and keeps it going. So it's very much this kind of surprising alternative uh, uh, emergent sort of system. So that's not unlike other peer-to-peer -peer networks. So other peer-to-peer -peer networks have been like BitTorrent uh, and Tor, for example. These are also peer-to-peer -peer networks where nodes can come and go as they please. And so on one hand, we have seen many successful examples of peer-to-peer -peer networks that do limited things like file sharing. And we've seen successful centrally managed digital currencies like uh, World of Warcraft Gold or other examples like that. And it, but it's, it came as a huge surprise and no one was really expecting it until this 2009 when it just happened. Suddenly it fell into our laps uh, that you'd be able to combine the two successfully. So everybody wants to know, you're dealing with currency, how secure is it? You know, how can we trust it? Uh, so, so that's really difficult. Um, it, it depends on it depends to a large degree on how you use it. Uh, so, you know, there's two ways to answer it, right? So, one is uh, how do you, you know is it even possible for you to keep your own Bitcoin secure? Uh, then the other side of it is is the whole system going to crash like a you know like a speculative bubble? Mm -hmm. And both of those have totally different answers. Uh, the latter ones may be a lot harder to answer. Um, but just for the first one, so what's great about Bitcoin is that you can actually uh, hold on to your currency yourself, kind of like stashing cash under the mattress. Uh, if you generate your own keys, you know, you run the computer program to generate private keys and public keys. The public key is your address, which if you tell it to people, they can send you money. And your private key is what you need to keep safe because that's what allows you to spend your money. And if you lose it, you've lost your money. And if someone takes it from you, they've, they've taken your money. Uh, so if you generate your own keys and keep them on your own computer, or make a, a backup of them written on paper and keep that in your closet, it's as secure as you can, you can keep those secure. Now, what happens is that most people's computers, especially if you're running some unupgraded Windows PC, for example, and you're clicking on a lot of email attachments that you shouldn't or downloading a bunch of software you, you shouldn't from sketchy places, uh, most people's computers are actually very insecure. And so sure enough, there's malware and viruses. You can click an email attachment that has a virus in it that will uh, look for a Bitcoin wallet, like the standard Bitcoin wallet file in your home directory. And so if you get infected by such a, a piece of malware, they'll take your Bitcoins. So that's one way that people lose, uh, lose their Bitcoins. Um, as I mentioned, most people will not, their first use of this might be registering with an account at an exchange rather than 
dealing with it directly yourself, like having an, an account at a bank rather than keeping the money in your mattress. And if you trust one of these exchanges to hold your Bitcoins for you, and then they have a compromise, either they get embezzled, that's what happened with Mt. Gox, or they have a security failure, they get compromised, that's happened to countless other exchanges, um, then there's no guarantee. So these Bitcoin exchanges are happy to hold onto your Bitcoins for you, but they're not FDIC insured. And uh, they, they're getting better, but it's been a painful uh, road towards improving the security of Bitcoin exchanges. So then there's no guarantees. So what does it mean that it operates on a gas mechanism? What, what does that mean? Uh, so uh, for a while, Bitcoin transactions were, were free. So you can make a Bitcoin transaction. You can send you know, five units of Bitcoin from your account to someone else and not have to pay anything. Technically, that's still true. You can make a free transaction. But what's happened is that as it's reached increasing usage, uh, now you will face fairly significant delays in processing unless you attach an optional fee. So they have a kind of complicated mechanism for how you can pay for processing. And so uh, there's a bunch of complicated rules, like if you're spending a coin that hasn't moved, like you haven't touched it for a year, it'll have high priority, and then maybe you don't need to attach a fee to it. Uh, but these days, most uh, if you make a transaction from an exchange or you use any of the commonly used software, like Bitcoin wallet software on your Android or iPhone or the standard software that you can download, uh, it, will, it will choose to pay a fee of about, I don't remember even what exactly the fee is, but it'll be some number of cents, depends on the size of the transaction and some other features. So if you want to be processed immediately and if you follow these default rules, it's not, it's not free. And essentially what you're doing is paying some money that goes to the, uh, the miners, the nodes in the network who are keeping the system running, and it goes to them as part of their reward, which is their incentive for participating in the first place. A few years ago, I don't know if it was 2014, 15, whatever, uh, Bitcoin was kind of at a crossroads because if people were afraid that, is this going to be scalable? It seems like, have we passed that threshold? Are, are people confident that, that Bitcoin's going to survive uh, because of that? Uh, it, that is by no means over. So there's very much still uh, a crossroads and a debate within the community about how scaling is going to work. Um, I'll try to give the briefest that I can you know, introduction to this problem, but there's a there's a, a limit in Bitcoin that's a capacity limit, and so what happens is that there are batches of transactions called blocks that get committed every ten minutes, and there's a limit in Bitcoin right now that says each batch can only contain one megabyte worth of transactions, and that's some number of you know maybe a thousand transactions. It works out to something like three transactions per second, or between three and seven transactions per second as the limit. Uh, and so there's a debate within the community about do we increase this limit to accommodate more transactions or do we keep the limit as it is because there may be some undesirable side effects of increasing the limit. And this is actually an active topic of discussion among developers. It's also an interesting topic to address through empirical measurement and different kinds of science studies. Uh, so it's by no means, it's an old problem because this has been argued about fiercely for several years now and it's still uh, unresolved. And maybe one of the things that's changed now is that there are now many competitors to Bitcoin, some of which seem fairly viable. So it's common to, to measure the size of a cryptocurrency by its market cap. It's the same way you would measure the size of a, of a stock or something. It's just the number of coins that are out there in circulation times the current price. And so Bitcoin is by far the largest, by like an order of magnitude, the largest. Uh, so the number two 
sized cryptocurrency for a long time has been Litecoin. Right now it's Ethereum. And uh, they're like a tenth of the size of Bitcoin by this market cap measure. And there's a long tail. There's like hundreds of these that are all potentially competing with it and, you know, would gain market share if Bitcoin makes some bad policy decision. Then people may just flee Bitcoin and move to uh, another, you know, another system, not unlike perhaps how people fled from MySpace to Facebook uh, however many years ago. Right. So similar to the internet it's un, you know it's n nobody controls it it's not a it, it doesn't have a, a neighborhood or whatever so how has it improved you know uh, if you go in and try to improve it or is there you know how, how does that work the fact that this is it's out there and it's it's kind of an, an un uncontrolled yeah so it, it really is complicated uh, the so while the system as a whole is not explicitly controlled by any administrator, uh, the popular software packages are organized like other open source projects, and they have some kind of hierarchy of control. Uh, so the most popular Bitcoin software right now is Bitcoin Core, and this is the this is a, a team of developers. They have a, a GitHub repository where all the software goes. They have some number of administrators of that repository. You have the credentials to you know, approve or reject commits. And so generally in the way it's happened so far is if you want to make a change to Bitcoin, you will go through this development, uh, Bitcoin improvement process uh, that they've developed over the years. So there's open discussion. You can make posts on any of the developer mailing lists with your proposal or the idea for the proposal. They'll be discussed. At some point, you make a, a pull request or you make an issue in the, the tracker. You make one of these formal Bitcoin improvement proposals where you provide the reference of your code that you want to change, the rationale for it, and then a big developer discussion ensues. And this is the process by which most of the changes to the Bitcoin code base have gone through so far. Uh, if you want to make a, a change to Bitcoin that requires something that the core developers end up disagreeing with, then you have to go through like a revolution process or stage some kind of coup. And that seems to be the sort of uh, uh, tricky circumstances that are active today. So. Uh, Bitcoin as a whole has no administrator. The Bitcoin core project is somewhat well organized and has leadership roles. But there are other competing factions of Bitcoin developers who have their own separate code bases. And uh, they're essentially lobbying in a market to you know, get people to, they would like for everyone to switch to their code base so that their code base becomes the most popular one. And then that would be like a, a coup. It would be kicking the current leaders out of power and, and favoring a new one. And I have no you know, way to explain what the... This is so far beyond, uh, you know, anything that we study in distributed systems textbooks about how to ensure a system against, uh, you know, a coup among the user base and the developers. So it's a really strange and exciting time in that regard. So having said that, then, um, you know, what is a, a mining coalition? Because that seems to be a group that would come together. Can you explain how that fits in with the whole uh, the, the Bitcoin community or uh, universe, if, if you will? Sure. So... Uh, Bitcoin works based on this uh, really strange process called mining, which has never existed in a distributed system uh, uh, before Bitcoin. So the idea is that uh, the way that you make it secure, despite having any uh, no administrator who says, here's a node participating, these are the only nodes that are allowed to participate, there's nothing like that. What happens is anyone who wants to participate in Bitcoin uh, can apply computing power, they're sort of racing to solve this kind of computational puzzle where the more computing power you have behind you, the better chance you have of being the next person to solve a puzzle. And uh, 
each miner who finds one of these puzzle solutions gets a, a, a reward. They get some newly printed Bitcoin and they get a chunk of any transaction fees that people using the system have provided. Uh, and so this, is, this provides the security of the system because the more people who are competing to add more computational power to this, the more expensive it would be for an attacker to go and mount any of the possible attacks like rewinding history or canceling transactions or censoring transactions. So the more people who mine, the more expensive it is for an attacker. And Bitcoin's been very successful at getting a lot of people to mine. It's giving out something like a million dollars per day total in mining rewards. So all of the people who are contributing computing power are basically you know, competing for a slice of that. And so a good estimate is that on average, there's a million dollars per day spent on mining rewards, because if there were less than that, you'd profit by adding more computing power. And uh, if it's less than that, then you, you know, would want to reduce it. Um, so it's created this kind of uh, marketplace competition where, for, for computing power, where a million dollars per day is there as a bounty to encourage people to, to contribute their computing power. Now, be, this is so competitive, and there's been this uh, uh, growing uh, technology scale where modern mining equipment is so efficient at doing this, uh, and there are large warehouses, industrial mining rigs, they're called, filled with really efficient ASIC mining equipment, like just specialized circuits that do nothing except Bitcoin mining. They're optimized for that. They're very good at it. So it used to be like in 2009, like when I started, you could just open up your laptop and mine and you'd get a bunch of Bitcoins that at the time weren't worth anything. Now, if you just turn on your laptop or even a powerful desktop computer, uh, you will be contributing such a small portion to the whole network's hash power that you're not going to be seeing any reward anytime soon. And the reason why mining pools form is because it's a bit like winning a lottery. So one of these uh, puzzle solutions is found on average every 10 minutes. So if you find a puzzle solution, if you're lucky and you get one of these every 10 minutes, there, there will be something like a $10,000, maybe on the order of $10,000 that you get in, uh, in this reward. So if you turn on a computer today, your chance of getting one of those is going to be extremely low. Maybe on average it would take you a dozen years and who knows what's, you know, the, the, what the competition level is going to be at that time. So what happens is just like in lottery pools, miners will form together and then agree to share the rewards amongst each other. So it's, a, it's the modern day uh, gold rush, if you will. <laughs> uh, yeah, the, the, uh, the, the, in, in our textbook, we actually make a little analogy of uh, the gold rush. So the gold rush started with, you know, 49ers sifting a pan in the river and then gradually became more sophisticated until now you're strip mining with dynamite, you know, building big pits into the ground like an industrial operation. It's been the same process with Bitcoin mining, steadily more sophisticated equipment and now dominated by, you know, these really deliberate and professional mining centers. So in April, you have the uh, fourth annual Bitcoin and blockchain research workshop, of which you're um, um, the uh, uh, program, chair. program chair. Yeah, and and so talk about who, who goes there. Is it mainly academians? You know, and then you know, kind of a follow up, I guess. If if people have stored bitcoins places where you, you're trying to hide them, how, how do you deal with law enforcement when people are trying to? actually trying to find those. So, you know, it seems to me there's there's a big market out there beyond the research um, that maybe hasn't we haven't even tapped into yet. Yeah, uh, we'll have to take those one at a time. I'm sorry. So <laughs> I can tell you a bit about the, the, the Bitcoin and blockchain research workshops. So uh, this is a this is an academic uh, workshop. It's peer reviewed. 
Um, it is co-located with Financial Cryptography, which is a very interesting conference. Um, my PhD advisor would say, this is a boondoggle. This is a bunch of people who gather in, uh, in the Caribbean. It's always in the Caribbean or in an island. This year it's in Malta. Um, but I'm a big fan of this conference. It's been going on for, uh, I think they've had their 20th anniversary uh, uh, just last year. Um, this is a, a conference that was originally very involved in the cypherpunk movement uh, when the, there was like a first wave of attempts at making digital cash. And so uh, folks who were working on digital cash you know, that many years ago would often go to this conference and present their work. Um, there's several cool claims to fame of the financial crypto conference, like I think PayPal was first announced there when it was SquarePay. Before it was even PayPal, it was first an uh, announced at the financial crypto conference. And it, it continued to have a lot of research, but there, there, the... You know, by, by all accounts, the, the cryptography-based digital currency first wave effort uh, that was right around at the beginning of the financial co crypto conference history failed. And so that line of work sort of dwindled out. And then right when it became the surprise that Bitcoin's working, it's like, why wasn't this invented at the financial crypto conference? So you saw the surge of interest of uh, new students who are now really interested in this stuff where they wouldn't have been so otherwise. Um, you can imagine that all of the paper submissions to the financial crypto conference, you know, 2010 or 11 were based on, on Bitcoin. And so this workshop formed as a, as a, a specific offshoot of financial crypto co-located with it um, that just covers Bitcoin and cryptocurrency technologies. This was one of the first workshops that uh, I submitted my work to or started attending when uh, I was a student trying to get involved in this kind of research. So I feel very much like it's a... Out of my home community, I have a, a you know a warm feeling for it, so I'm very happy to serve as a program chair for it. Um, it takes on lots of uh, research from many different topics. It's fairly uh, centered in computer security field uh, and in cryptography and computer science research. Although uh, some papers, and certainly it's in scope to, to have these, are about the economics of Bitcoin or about uh, things like adoption of it or even legal issues. So, if I may. Uh somebody in law enforcement um you know how, you obviously need to know a little something about uh, cryptocurrency to even investigate um you know do people that uh, that are in the academia do they they work with law enforcement how, how do they work hand in hand or is there going to be a, an agency at the fbi for instance that will uh, focus on cryptocurrency so so yeah so the the so cryptocurrency is uh, often thought of as entirely anonymous, and, and it can be made in uh, in a way that's anonymous. Uh, the anonymity of Bitcoin has been greatly overstated, at least for sure in the sort of first few years of its widespread use. So you don't need to sign up with a bank or show an ID in order to use Bitcoin. So in that sense, you can you can use it anonymously. However, uh, there's a lot of information that gets leaked when you use Bitcoin, especially if you don't. Uh, go out of your way to cover your tracks. And in fact, the whole system works based on this very public mechanism where every transaction gets sent to all the miners and propagated around a public network. So in many ways, it's more transparent and more visible, the transactions that happen in Bitcoin, than what happens with banks. So Bitcoin has been used for all sorts of crimes, raising, ranging from uh, ransomware payments to uh, money laundering and uh, illegal black markets. Uh, but 
criminals that don't know exactly what they're doing or the slightest bit unsophisticated or even you know fairly sophisticated but mess up leave a lot of trail of, uh, of evidence in, in the Bitcoin network. So a lot of academic research has been on analyzing the degree to which Bitcoin offers privacy or the degree to which new algorithms can be used to connect the dots and trace the payments and figure out who was responsible for this payment there. So I'm pretty sure that by now any law enforcement uh, uh, you know, the FBI or some technically uh, competent law enforcement agency is going to have, uh, they're going to know who to talk to to do blockchain analysis. And uh, there's several companies that actually have like a, a comp- very technically detailed platforms like Chainalysis and uh, uh, I want to say Elliptic, but I, I feel like that may not be the, the right word for that. But there's several companies who are developing technical platforms that sort of automate the process of, of analyzing the blockchain and trying to combine it with other information on the internet to de-anonymize transactions. And they are definitely working with law enforcement. You mentioned earlier Ethereum, which, I, I don't know, it seems to me like the stepchild of mm-hmm. Bitcoin, but certainly one of the uh, competitors out there. How is it different um, from, from Bitcoin and uh, uses... Ether as opposed to gas. What does that mean? And and you know, it, is there a future for Ethereum, um, even if Bitcoin continues to be the the one of choice? Yeah. So uh, Ethereum is is very interesting to me. So uh, I wouldn't be so motivated and excited about this if the only thing you could do with cryptocurrencies was money and build like a digital alternative to gold. What I'm really excited about is the potential to build. Uh, new kinds of applications on top of this. The big surprise is that we can have this really powerful system that runs without any administrators, and that seems really surprising and powerful. And so while the, the goal of Bitcoin and the scope of it is kind of limited to doing these payments, Ethereum is a uh, meant to be a general-purpose platform. So it provides a little programming language where you can... Uh, essentially write little programs that use the money that exists on their blockchain. So it's a little bit like when you, these are called smart contracts because you can think of contract law as a way of writing programs that say how money your different assets are supposed to flow from person to person depending on conditions or depending on choices that people make. And so it's the same thing with smart contracts in Ethereum. You write in now computer code that's automatically executed. It's run by this decentralized system rules that say how money should flow from one person to another depending on real world events depending on uh, the outcomes of things like elections that you can program in the system and so a lot of my research is involving exploring uh, how can we get the most out of this what are new applications we can do how can we do really interesting things with this and then how can we write these programs in a secure way what kinds of security risks uh, are out there there have been all sorts of uh, good examples of uh, major failures where someone wrote a smart contract incorrectly and this led to a vulnerability and all the money leaked out. And so it's by no means a, a, a guaranteed to be safe system, but at the same time, it's got a lot of flexibility and, and, and power. Uh, so I, I find that really exciting. Uh, I absolutely think that Ethereum can continue to exist even while Bitcoin is perhaps the most, the, you know, the largest in financial value. Um, I would still be interested in using Ethereum even if it, uh, like as a means of prototyping and to to experiment with what's possible, even if it ends up not succeeding. Um, The nice thing about 
having this as a research topic is I'm kind of insulated from the ups or downs of any particular right. uh, you know, success or failure of these. I'm really interested in knowing what, what's the outlook, what's the possibility of what you can do with these. You did, I believe, uh, work with least authority to do an audit of Ethereum. What were some of the results that you found? Oh, wow, yeah. Um, so uh, I got commissioned by the Ethereum Foundation in like late 2014, so around when they were launching to work with um, uh, this company, Least Authority, is run by a guy, Zuko uh, Wilcox, who was a member of Digicash or an employee of Digicash back then. And he's someone who became a friend of mine when I was getting interested in this because I wanted to hear stories about how the first cypherpunk movement, the first attempts to build digital currency, worked and failed. Uh, so I, I've been uh, collaborating with him on open source projects for a while. Um, that group, led by Zuko, is now in charge of the Zcash project. So uh, he's been active in the digital currency, cryptocurrency space for you know, going on 20 years now. Um, when we were commissioned to do this report for Ethereum, we wanted to look at their, uh, this was before they had their public release, but they still had code that was available online. And I was actually already incorporating uh, their code base into security, teaching computer security classes at University of Maryland. Um, it's a really fun like sandbox to play with problems, applications of cryptography, and so on. So what we tried to do was to make a report outlining uh, potential problems, potential pitfalls, anything we could find, especially focusing on their new aspects, so on their new programming language and on their, uh, their, their transaction fee mechanism. That's where the gas comes in. Um, I don't think the details of that matter so much. Um, several of the, I think it's very interesting as kind of an I told you so way, but several of the, the comments that we made about potential pitfalls, several of them they ended up addressing and found their way into the, their main release, uh, but many of them they marked as won't fix. And so, for example, one of the things that we pointed out is that the one of these parts of the programming language involving uh, control passing from one smart contract to another. The details don't matter so much, but it's this one intricate part of the rules of how their, their virtual machine works. Uh, weren't incorrect, but they were likely to be uh, misleading to programmers who have experience with Python or some similar looking language. They'd get the wrong intuition about what this code actually says it would do. And one of the mistakes of this was actually visible in their example code, that their example code could uh, you know, exhibit this kind of failure where their example code showed a bad habit where if you did that bad habit, you followed their example but applied this bad habit elsewhere, it could lead to a, a, a loss of funds. And they said that even though this is a potential pitfall, we're going to leave the, the virtual machine as it is and deal with this with documentation to warn people about it. And it turned out that any warnings that they included in their documentation turned out not to be sufficient because uh, this exact thing that we reported on like in early 2015, ended up uh, biting developers when they built uh, this DAO smart contract, which had $100 million uh, invested in it and ended up getting hacked and exploited and losing all of its money. And then this led to a very complicated rollback scenario that they had to do to try to mitigate it. So in a sense, it was a big uh, unavoidable or a big unnecessary avoidable problem. Uh, and so I get to say, ah, oh, see, we pointed this out in our report. But on the other hand, you know, we pointed out you know, lots of things in the report, and many of them didn't end up leading to, to this kind of catastrophe, and they fixed some of them. So I'm not going to say, ah, oh, they, they just should have read our report, although there's a grain of truth to that. So it's kind of that story. So uh, you're here at Illinois, and 
gone through a semester now starting the second semester here you know what what advantage do you see students that come and study under you you know what do you, do you see them being plugged into into this role that, that maybe you were as a PhD student uh, you know how, how do you plan to utilize Illinois students in in this research uh, yeah that's an excellent question let me kind of answer this in two ways so uh, yeah, I'm very excited to be here because the students who are here seem to have uh, really excellent coding abilities and are, are good at uh, the kind of work that I want to do. Uh, I think it is excellent as a topic, this uh, kind of cryptocurrency topic. There's a bunch of perks of it that just make it really exciting to do research in this field. Normally, in other research areas, you write a paper and then no one reads the paper except your review committee or it's very you know, unlikely that uh, your, your audience is very small. Uh, uh, portion of people, and then there's a long delay between the, the work that gets done and its adoption in practice. Here, because there's such an enthusiastic uh, development community, they're hungry for research, and so the experience that I have is that when people in cryptocurrency research publish a paper, it gets scrutinized by the developer community the day you release it, and leads to these you know big uh, uh, conversations about it, and often gets adopted into you know next versions of the code. Uh, so you get to participate in this much larger community that's very interested in your research, and so it feels very much alive, and uh, it's got this kind of phenomenology to it uh, of being really you know, alive and active, and I think that's really exciting uh, uh, as a research topic. So for sure that made uh, my PhD really exciting, and so I'm, I'm hoping to share some of that uh, enthusiasm uh, with my students. The other side of the answer is that even just beside cryptocurrency-focused research, uh, computer security is a huge topic. Right. And it's a really uh, booming topic because there's a lot of great uh, technology that is now becoming practical, uh, especially in the domain of fault-tolerant systems and applied cryptography. So you can now, in theory, we've, there are these topics like multi-party computation and zero-knowledge proofs. These are kinds of cryptography that can be used for really interesting applications, and they're on the, the cutting edge of practical. Like they're, they're becoming practical, and for some applications, you can now find ways of using them where they're, they're fast enough and they work well enough. And what's happening is that cryptocurrencies have advanced the rate at which this stuff is getting used and deployed to where cryptocurrency applications are the first place that generic zero-knowledge proofs called SNARKs uh, are being used. This is the cryptography underlying Zcash, and Zcash is the first uh, uh, wide application of this technology, uh, similar for multi-party computation. And so uh, this is the perfect sandbox if you want to learn and cut your teeth on using these kinds of uh, technologies. Cryptocurrencies is for sure the, the, the most fun place to try to apply it. And I would say that's maybe uh, analogy of the of things you do in space the there are uh, technologies that are used in space but then they're adopted yeah. otherwise yeah. so you know really good analogy that's where the science is yeah so right, right. I, I think that these uh i'm not going to try to compare cryptocurrency <laughs> to the space program but um, uh yeah it does kind of have that feel so uh what's the future here uh you know in a field that's less than 10 years old and certainly computer security a part of that uh we mentioned bitcoin and ethereum and and uh, you hinted it at the zcash landscape you know where do you see where do you see this heading and uh you know is this something that will be widely adopted how you know what percentage of of the population do you think will be using bitcoins in the next five to ten years 
I'm hesitant to bet on on cryptocurrencies uh, becoming so much more widely used or like competing with dollars or other fiat currencies, at least large established ones. Um, but I don't think it has to. It could happen. I'm, I'm just not going to bet on it. Um, I think it could happen. And regardless, I think that they've reached a critical mass where I don't see these going away. I think that they're going to be there. They're going to be available as a complement as a complementary currency. I, I think we're kind of past the point of no return or where the cat's out of the bag and uh, uh, these aren't going to completely vanish and they're going to provide several uses for niche communities uh, even if they don't have any increased usage compared to what they do today. I do predict that they'll continue to, to grow at what rate or whether it reaches another exponential you know, shooting off point, uh, uh, who knows. I'm really excited about the potential to use these for new kinds of applications that we haven't yet seen. So, so far, we're just providing alternatives to existing currencies. Um, but I think that there are several examples of really exciting things that you can do with this that you wouldn't have had otherwise. So, for example, the DAO project, this is the one that had a big vulnerability and lost all of its you know, money and became a, a, now it's a disaster for avoidable reasons. Uh, but if it hadn't had that software programming error, it would have been a really fascinating experiment in a new kind of financial instrument or a new kind of organization. Essentially, it was like a, a hedge fund that's managed by all of the members jointly by voting. And there hasn't been any example of some kind of a, a organization like that that had no leader, but instead was entirely automated, but made its decisions based on the input from its members. That kind of thing seems really fabulous to me. So I'm most optimistic about cryptocurrencies being used for uh, like new kinds of maybe, I think of examples of like uh, uh, managing recommendations and upvoting or downvoting in social media, maybe some combination of monetization and incorporating uh, uh, votes and input and reviews from from participants can be uh, you know experimented with in some way that would take place on one of these cryptocurrency blockchain systems as a way of implementing it I think we're going to stop there but uh, there's so many other topics yeah. that are kind of the the tangential uh, topics that we can talk about and certainly computer security in general mm -hmm. we could spend a whole show or two on that but uh, I appreciate you taking the time sure. and uh, looking forward to talking to you down the road yeah Thank you so much. This has been fun. As Andrew Miller, assistant uh, professor uh, of computer engineering and computer science here at the University of Illinois. Uh, thank you for listening. This is Mike Kuhn.